If you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark, the 12th chapter. We're going to take a break from our usual sermon series on the Hall of Faith. I feel a burden to speak some different things to you this morning. Mark, the 12th chapter, and our subject today is Caesar's role in our lives. Caesar's role in our lives. Psalm 33 and 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And certainly we understand that many nations throughout history have been blessed because they gave reverence and honor to the Lord, to Jehovah. Not just any God, but to Jehovah. You can find that throughout history. And of course, we understand that God's kingdom, the church is a visible manifestation of God's kingdom, but the church of God, the kingdom of God, and even beyond just the church, supersedes all authority in nations that exist. And when a nation falls away from respect and honor to God, that's when bad things start to happen. So this morning is my, you might also call this a Bible civics lesson. I told you a week or so ago that I had a, my political sermon is coming. And I say that with a smile because it's not political, okay? I'm not up here advocating a particular political party. I'm up here advocating the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, and I think most of you would agree with me, I'm telling you that if you want the answers to what you should do in relation to your daily life, to your workplace, to your community, within your church, and within the government that God has blessed you to be a part of, if you want guidance, it's there. It's there. All you have to do is look for it. And it's also good to listen to men of God who are willing to speak about such things. So pray for me this morning, especially so it won't sound as though I'm promoting one particular uh, political party because I'm not. But I will tell you this, you can't go back. You would have to be blind or rewrite history to go back and say, well, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, had nothing to do with the founding of this country. You just have to rewrite history. Because without exception, the founding fathers, quote after quote after quote of their dependence upon the Lord, their understanding of depravity. And as I've told you many times, and it won't hurt to say it again, that three out of four churchgoers in 1776 could converse fluently about total depravity, election and predestination, particular redemption, the irresistible grace of God, which is what Brother McNeil has been speaking to us about, the work of the Spirit. See, those things were fluent. I was visiting with some folks just last night, and I pointed this out, that if you just take the candidates in general, I'm not just talking about the presidential candidates, but if you just took the political scene in general, and you stood that up against the spiritual and intellectual prowess of the founding fathers. And I'm not saying the today politicians, they're not smart. I'm not saying that. But if you compare the richness from the reading about their lives and about the things they said out of their own mouth, if you compared that, it is astonishing. It's almost, I, I don't want to sound crass, but it's almost laughable when you compare what's going on today to the spiritual mindedness of what went on in the 1700s when God providentially blessed this country to come into existence. It's never been perfect. One of the biggest blights on the founding of this country was that slavery existed. And we're still suffering from that in some ways today. It was a horrible, sinful blight. But God is the God of the gaps, and He can overrule or overcome any sin. And I believe that's what He's done in our history. We don't want to forget that. So I'm going to try extra hard to make sure that I smile a lot and you know I'm not mad or angry or, or pointing out any particular person. But at the same time, i got to tell you the truth about the Word of God. So let's consider what Jesus said about Caesar. And when I refer to Caesar, I'm referring to government in general. Okay? Let's read in Mark 12 and 12. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. 
For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Notice the intent of why they're coming to him. Uh, And by the way, they can't catch him in the law. They can't catch him with any of their own devices. So they reach outside of the Mosaic law. They say, well, maybe we'll catch him and hang him on, you know, what he says about the government. (laughs) So now let me just say this. If you're listening to me this morning and you're trying to catch me and hang me on what I say about the government, you're no different than the Pharisees. (laughs) If that didn't settle in, it will after a while. And if you get mad at me, I'll forgive you. I promise you. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Ha, ha, ha. This is tongue in cheek. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? You see, this is a, this is, by the way, this is another side note, but this is a great indicator of a legalist. Okay? Legalists only see things in black and white. There's no gray area in their life. It's got to be my way or the highway. That's a legalist. You better be glad that the men that were appointed to, to judge the nation of Israel in the days of Moses were not such men. He said they needed wise men who understood that no two situations were alike. That you had to have discernment. It's easy just to call things black and white. And no no doubt there are some things that you can see bright, clear lines. We're going to talk about three or four of those. Bright, clear lines. But most of life, if you'll be realistic, is a gray area. Everything's got its own scenario. I've told you before, I've tried many cases to juries and you get a case and you start working on it and you think, well, this is going to be just like the last one, but it's not. <laughs> and the jury's not like the last one. No two situations are alike. By the way, if you're a parent, you know, no two children are alike. So that being said, if you see things in bright, uh, you know, black and white and there's no in between, then you need to be careful. You might be a legalist. Okay? Now, there are bright, clear lines we can see in certain areas, but life in general, you've got to have wisdom. You've got to have discernment. And these men come and say, shall we give or shall we not give? They're trying to catch Jesus. And I love the response. Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, and I wish I could take credit for, for this, but I can't. i got to give credit to Elder Michael Goins. He's the one that I heard come up with it. He might have got it from somebody else. But, you know, you've heard of the different political parties, you know, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Tea Party, Green Party, all this different stuff. Well, here is a totally different political party that you don't want to be a part of, and it's called the Hippocratic Party. <laughs> I love it. They're hypocrites. You don't want to be a part of the Hippocrat Party. These guys are hypocrites. So how do we know? Because Jesus, in another place, he says, Why tempt ye me? Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? <laughs> They're of the Hippocrat, Hippocratic Party. And he says, Bring me a penny that I may see it. I love the way that Jesus is just kind of, you know, this is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is establishing his kingdom. And he's not, he's not throwing off on the kingdoms of the world. He's just merely making the point there's a kingdom that's more important than the nations of the world. Bring me a penny, let me see it. They brought it, and he said unto them, them, whose is this image and superscription? (laughs) It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know, but he's making the point to them that in comparing it to his kingdom, it is of no consequence. We could take, I wish that was a pill we could take every day. When you compare the kingdoms of men, when you compare the United States of America to the kingdom of God, there is no comparison. No comparison. 
It's a different jurisdiction. Yes, we live within it, and praise God, we are citizens of a free country, but we are also citizens of a higher country, a better country. And Jesus said, Who's it? who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy on this penny? And they said, it's Caesar's. I'm sure some of them were like, oh my goodness, he doesn't even know who Caesar is. He knows who Caesar is. And Jesus answering and says unto them, I can see him sitting there looking at that penny, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What a statement. Whatever belongs to Caesar, then you take care of that with Caesar. But whatever belongs to God, you render that to God. Now the problem comes in sometimes when Caesar demands you render to him that which belongs to God. <laughs> that's, where we, that's where the line divides, you see. You've got to have discernment for that. So, Jesus is giving a civics lesson about government, about the role of government in our lives. Um, you might say, well, does God, it sounds like God doesn't really care. I'm telling you, God cares. God cares about whether or not we are good citizens, law-abiding citizens, whether or not we vote, so forth, and all of that. He does care. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Back in the Old Testament... <laughs> God in the Mosaic law, and I'm not advocating this because we're not under the Mosaic law, but what in the world do haircuts and bird nests have to do with what God is pleased with? Well, in the Mosaic law, God legislates how men were to cut their hair. <laughs> it's been a long time since I told you this funny story. It's funny to me, but there was this dear brother who, he was a wild man, and the Lord, the Spirit of God, got a hold of him and changed him, born him again, he was a totally different man. He was a rough guy. The way I got to know him was through representing him as a victim in an attempted murder case where his son-in-law had shot him in the head, and he survived. This was a hard-headed guy. He'd have made a good old Baptist, an old hard shell. We'd have called him a hard-head hard shell. But his own son-in-law shot him in the head and didn't kill him. So that brother started coming to church, and he had a ponytail all the way down his back. He lived a rough life. He's about 320 pounds, and he wasn't just blobby. You know, he was, a, he was husky. And so he comes to my office. He'd come and visit with me. we talk about the Bible. God rest his soul. He passed away. He died in a car wreck not many years after he started coming. And so he came and sat out in my office one day, and he had those kind of wild eyes, you know. And, you know, when he looked at you, you didn't want to take your eyes off of him, you know. <laughs> What's fixing to happen? And so he looked at me with those wild eyes and he said, Brother Tim, he, he grabbed his ponytail and he said, he whipped it around. He said, you think this ponytail is offending anybody down there at Bethlehem? <laughs> and I, I went, you know, I swallowed and I, and I thought, you know, this fella, if he doesn't like what I answer him, he could wipe the walls down with me. He could just, just wipe it down. And I gulped and I really wasn't afraid, but I thought of what the Apostle Paul said, that it was a shame for a man to have a long hair. I didn't say Brother Tim's opinion is. I said, Brother David, I said, the Word of God says, Paul, the Apostle of Christ, said, it's a shame for a man to have a long hair. And he had his hand, he goes, well, all right, I appreciate you telling me that. <laughs> he came to church next Sunday, his hair was cut. And that's in the New Testament, by the way. God cares about how we look. In the Old Testament, haircuts and bird nests, God legislated how a man was to cut his hair. And then not far from where he talks about cutting the hair, he says, this, this is really blows my mind. The Lord says in another verse, not long after that, legislates it in the Mosaic law. He said, if you're walking along and you encounter a bird nest on the, on the ground, you should be cautious and take care of it. You know, you should put it back or you should do something. Don't just leave it there. That's crazy, isn't it? God cares about haircuts and bird nests. I'm telling you, he does. He's a God of details. Now look, he's not a God sitting up there with a hammer like Thor. You know, Thor's not even real. Sorry, Marvel fans, but Thor's not even real. But he's not up there with a hammer about to smash you if you step out of line. We're living under grace and mercy. Praise God. But God cares. If God legislated haircuts and bird nests, he cares. 
And I think one of, the, one of the primary reasons this is on my mind is I was visiting with a dear, dear man from far away from here. Dear man who is one of the kindest men that I know. That's saying a lot because I know a lot of men. And he said, Brother Tim, he said, we were talking about politics. And he said, Brother Tim, he said, it's sad. He said, my own granddaughter sent an email out to all of our family and said, if you don't vote for a particular candidate that I'm voting for, I'm not going to ever speak to you again. Isn't that sad? You know, without even getting into who the the granddaughter's talking about, that's just sad that that someone would be so uninformed and also also that they would be so bully-like. That's a bully tactic to try to get your way. You see, and it's so funny that there's so many out there today that say, we don't want bullies, but their tactics are bully tactics. If you don't do this or do that, you're going to get canceled. You see, that, that young woman was going to cancel her family if they didn't do what she wanted. I mean, how, that's just, unpacking all that is just too much to do in one sermon, you know. But that's what got me to thinking about it. You know, have we really come that far where a young woman with such a kind old grandfather would, would take such a position over a, a, a fleeting every four-year vote. You know, think about that. That, that. that she would value that fleeting every four years, one time, 20, 30-minute time that it takes to vote or an hour of time it takes it to vote. She would value that over a lifetime of, of input and love from such a man. That breaks my heart. Does it yours? I hope it does. But let me say this. I'm going on record to tell you that Anybody that hears this podcast, anybody that hears this sermon, anybody that hears anything I say about this, if you don't vote the way I think you should vote, and if you don't vote the way that I think the Word of God teaches that we should compute all this to vote, I will not cancel you. I will love you. I will pray for you. Because that's what God tells us to do. You see? There's no scenario where I'm going to cancel you. Oh, I wish that that was our attitude across the nation. Don't you? So Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So what is Caesar's role? Turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. Very clear, clear things that the the Word of God says about government. Notice in Romans 13 and 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. That does not mean that God sets up every ruler on every throne or every president upon uh, the, um, uh, in the presidential office. It does not mean that. A lot of people say that. It does not mean that. It means that God is, has jurisdiction over all the governments of the world. See, He can set up somebody like He did Nebuchadnezzar, but it doesn't mean that He does it every time. That's, that's another reason, another impetus for us to vote. It says the powers that be are ordained of God. The first government that was set up was set up by God. And you know, by the way, you know what that first government was? It was the family. The first government ever set up by God was the family in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, he joined them in holy matrimony. So before there was civic government, there was, uh, there was spiritual and physical government in the family. See? Whoso therefore resisteth the power of the government, resisteth the ordinance of God. It would, do, it would be well to point out right here that who the emperor was at the time that this was written. Some of you may already know it was Emperor Nero. He's the one that persecuted Christians and hung them up in his garden, tarred down and burned them to light his garden so he could walk through it at night. That's interesting that Paul is writing in the reign of Emperor Nero, one of the worst rulers that has ever lived, infamous. 
And Paul says, as long as that ruler is not calling upon you to violate the, the laws of God, then you obey that ruler. If you resist the ordinance of, of the power of the government, he says you resist the power of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. We don't have, I don't prosecute in uh, several traffic courts, we don't have good drivers coming in there and giving them certificates and rewards. You know, we have the ones that have broken the speed limit that come in there and we, they have a different kind of certificate. <laughs> you see? You know, the ruler, you know, the state trooper is not a terror to a good driver. The state trooper is a terror to those that are exceeding the speed limit. I know whereof I speak because I've been there myself years and years ago. So, wilt, uh, he says, Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power of the government? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister. Now, this is not talking about Brother Tim, the pastor. He's talking about the minister who is in authority. He's talking about the state trooper. He's talking about the judge. He's talking about the legislature. He's talking about the president. He's talking about the Congress. For those that are in authority, he is the minister of God. It does not mean that God is telling them everything to do. But it means because God is the first initiator of government, that every government that stems from, from that point, is, it was initially ordained by God. Do you see that? It's just like God created the first man. And we all come. That's why we cannot believe in evolution. Evolution gets around the first man. And you go back to a monkey or a fish or a single cell, which is, takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe there was a creator God. We all come from Adam, see? God initiated the first man. But God did not initiate the sin of Adam. And we all come from Adam. And therefore, all the sin that derives from coming down from Adam is not God's responsibility. God's not the cause of it. That's very simple. So all government stems from the King of kings and Lord of lords who set up the first government. I hope that it makes sense. He says, look, verse 4, For he is the minister or the servant of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. You might say today, he beareth not the radar gun in vain. <laughs> He beareth not the pistol in vain. He beareth not the billy club in vain. He beareth not the taser in vain. And you could cut, cut over into the court. You know, he beareth not the ruling in the court in vain. See? It's a good thing that we have laws. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute. The apostle Paul says, pay your taxes. Do that which is good. Render what you should render to the government. For for this cause, pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues. The word dues right there means debt. If you owe a debt to the government, render it to them. To all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. If you owe tribute, that's taxes paid kind of in general for a nation, just to be a citizen of that nation. Render that to the government. If uh, He says, render to custom. Render custom to whom custom is due. Custom is also like a tax for uh, the support of a civil government, like where you're paying to keep a judge or keep law enforcement or so forth. And he says, render fear to whom fear is due. That just means respect. Are we, have we ever lived in such a time, or have you ever heard of such a time where there is so little respect for the, the government? 
You know, if my particular folks are not in power, well, then I hate it and I disdain it. I tell you, that's an unchristian attitude. When there have been presidents in office and, and legislators in office and in Congress that I didn't agree with. You know, there's some right now that are in office that I don't agree with. But you know what I do? I try to pray for them on a regular basis. Because I'm commanded to. Yeah, it's a command, but it's also a desire of mine because I want to continue to live in freedom. I don't want anything to change from that. And as the old song said, the times they are changing. He says, honor to whom honor is due. That means to value. You should value your government. You should value the freedoms that you have. And he says, owe no man anything but to love one another. The word love right there is agape. And I've heard some of you brothers that preach here regularly. I remember a sermon Brother Neil preached on agape love, sacrificing love. I tell you, that's it. I'm just telling you, what I'm speaking about here today would bring revival across this country like you wouldn't believe. It would rev- if we had a brotherly sacrificial love one towards it doesn't mean you lay down well I'm not going I'm going to I'm going to show brotherly love so I won't vote for who I think I need to vote for. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about kindness and gentleness and obeying the law and respecting the government and praying for those that are in power whether you like them or not. You see, as a matter of fact in the days whenever the Christian church was new and there was just one church, it was back then there were no split out, you know, denominations. And they began to grow in such numbers, and they, they grew immediately, really quickly, and then they began to spread out and grow throughout the Roman government. The emperor of Rome wrote a letter to one of his provincial governors you know, wanting to know what's going on with this new sect that's coming up. And the, that man writes back, and he says, we've investigated it, we've carried out an, an investigation against this group, and we find that they are basically harmless. I'm paraphrasing the whole thing. You can go look it up. I've got a reference to this letter. But he says, basically, they're harmless. They pay their taxes. They just come together and call upon the name of Jesus Christ, and they try to serve him and, and honor him. But they pay their taxes, and they stay, you know, they stay basically out of trouble. They're some of the best citizens that the empire of Rome ever had, and they put them to death. See? And Paul writes this very thing during a time when this insane emperor, Nero, was on the throne. Now, let's read on just a little bit. He says, Owe no man anything. If you owe tribute to the government, pay it. If you owe custom to the government, pay it. If you owe respect to the government, pay it. If you owe honor to the government, pay it. And this is weird, isn't it? If you owe love to the government and your fellow citizen, pay it. That's weird to think of, isn't it, when it comes to civic duty? Love your neighbor. The Apostle Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, watch this now, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to go after his wife or, his, or her husband. Thou shalt not kill. You love your neighbor, you won't go kill him. <laughs> if you love your neighbor, you will not steal what they have. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You're not going to lie to your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. If, if your neighbor gets a nice new, builds a nice new house or gets a nice new car and you wish you had it, you're not going to covet it and hate him because he's got something better than you do. See? Uh, you can, it's 0% financing. Go get your own. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill or malice to his neighbor. How would y'all like it if I took a couple million dollars, which I don't have, and I bought an ad on CNN and Fox and other the major networks, and it, and it just said, love works no malice. You think they'd play that on there? Absolutely not. <laughs> they jacked the price up to 10 or $12 million, so I couldn't afford to do it. Love works no ill. So whatever side of the aisle somebody is on, there's nothing but malice being thrown out there today. 
That's not the way of a Christian. Okay? Now let's get specifically. I've got 13 minutes to give you four clear, bright lines that as a child of God, as a Christian, there can be no question on what the Word of God says about these four categories. Now, we're just pick, I'm picking out four because they're hot topics. And the child of God, the Christian who studies the Word of God, should never have any question about what God says about this. And by the way, this ties in directly to who you're going to vote for. Forget about the face of the man or the woman, but look at the platform. Look at the issues that are supported or not supported with whatever group you're looking at. And here's the big four. The first one is the sin of sodomy, homosexuality. Okay, I say this not in a way to be mean or mean-spirited towards any group of people. I call upon God's people across the board and myself to repent, whether the sin is homosexuality, whether the sin is adultery, whether the sin is fornication, so forth and so on. The Lord himself, there, there can be no question God's position on this. Is it right or is it wrong? In Leviticus, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Leviticus if you want to turn back there. I want you to notice what the Lord says about these several sins, including the sin of homosexuality. Let's go Leviticus 18 and 20, because this has to do with fornication and adultery. He says, moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife. Is that not what Paul just said over there in the book of Romans? To defile thyself with her. Now that's adultery and fornication. He says in verse 21, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed, that's your children, pass through the fire to Molech. I don't have time to go into all the details about the horrific worship of the false god Molech, but Molech, in that the, the rites in Molech or the requirements in Molech was to murder your firstborn child. It was abortion. But only thing is, these children were born on the table and tossed in the fire. I don't know how to be any more graphic about that than I can be. You understand that was a form of abortion in the Old Testament. So think about these hot topics right here in just three or four verses that are hitting several of the subjects that many children of God have questions about today. And I know you don't, but it, the reason I feel compelled to speak this and teach this, I don't want anybody to come back ever and say, well, I wonder what Brother Tim's position was on these issues. When God's word is so clear on these issues, it's not about a political party. It's about God's party. See? What does God say about these things? Where is his honor to be found? Thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech. The way that would apply to us today, thou shalt not murder a child. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Now watch this. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. There's the sin of homosexuality. In Leviticus, the 20th chapter, the Lord pronounces the judgment on all of these sins, not just homosexuality. He says it's the death penalty. How about that? Now, Brother Tim is not saying, well, I advocate the death penalty for everybody that's committing adultery and fornication and all these different things. I'm just telling you that God takes this seriously. Okay? And watch this now. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down there unto, uh, thereto. It is confusion. This is bestiality. Do you notice the progression right here? He starts off talking about fornication and adultery. Then he talks about abortion. Then he talks about um, homosexuality. And then he talks about the, about the farthest you can get away from any sensical existence. And that's bestiality, where somebody would actually engage in strange relations with their animal. Y'all have heard me say before that, that that's coming. You know, right now it's legal, legal in the United States of America for a man to marry a man, a woman to uh, marry a woman. And one day it's going to be legal for somebody to marry their animal. It's coming now. It's already in Europe. And we laugh and we think it's silly, but it, it's, it's for real. Okay? So you see how God feels about these things? Now, 
You say, well, that's Old Testament, Brother Tim. You know, God changed everything in the New Testament. No, He didn't. Romans, the first chapter. We, we don't have time to go there because I want to get to these other three. But Romans, the first chapter, He specifically singles out the sin of homosexuality. And He says this, that God has given them over to a reprobate mind to work that which is unseemly. Men with men, working that which is unseemly. And if you look at the words, the definitions of the words, the Greek words are very telling. The definitions indicate exactly what's going on there. But listen to this now. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, the Apostle Paul says that neither effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind, that is the specific word for sodomy. He says they have no place in the kingdom of God. And he says, praise God, praise the Lord. He says, but such were some of you. You understand that in the church at Corinth, there were people who had practiced homosexuality. They had practiced effeminacy. They had practiced all of these sins and they had repented. That's what we call upon God's people to do. And not just those particular sins, but the sin of lying, the sin of stealing, the sin of coveting, the sin of adultery, the sin of fornication. You see, all those are sins that need to be repented of. Now, second hot topic, same-sex marriage. Look at Matthew 19 and 4. And by the way, if I can show you in the Word of God in just 13 minutes where God speaks directly to such things as this, and then somebody says, well, I, just, I think it's a little unclear in the Scripture. It's not unclear on these issues. Matthew 19, and let's catch verse 3, because here's the Pharisees again, the bright line legalists who are trying to catch him and get him hung by the local government or by the Pharisees. The Pharisees also come unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They're wanting to know, we get tired of our wife, she burns the biscuits, can't I put her away? <laughs> They're talking about no-fault divorce, by the way. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now this speaks to two issues that we're going to look at. One is the same-sex marriage, the other is gender identity. Jesus Christ, out of his own mouth, says, God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man, a male, leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, a female, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Y'all understand that by me preaching and teaching that and saying that marriage is between a man and a woman according to the words of Jesus Christ, that's a bright, clear line in the scripture. Do y'all understand that technically I'm breaking the law by preaching that to you? Y'all understand that? That's where we are. I'm breaking the law of the land by saying marriage can only be, according to God's word, between a male and female. I'm breaking the law. That's something, isn't it? Now, this ties over into the next subject. As you can see, we need to have a bright, clear line about male and female is the only way that God defines marriage. It doesn't matter what the courts of the land say. Then we come to gender identity, which by far is, to me personally, the most easy to see. But because we're a feelings-based society, our feelings get many people twisted up in their mind and their thinking. By the way, I'm trying not to call any names, but I, I cannot overlook this. One of the candidates in a town hall meeting just a week or so ago referenced this gender identity issue, saying that it is acceptable. I went and watched it myself because I didn't want to, I didn't want to take somebody else's word, but I went and watched it myself, saying that it's acceptable for an eight- or a nine-year-old you think about your eight and your nine-year-old. I think about when mine were eight or nine years old. That it is acceptable for them and they should not be hindered from choosing their, their gender. If they feel, if they're a girl, they feel like they need to be a boy. If they're a boy, they feel like they need to be a girl. Are you kidding me? There's a lawsuit in the United Kingdom right now by two women who at that early age uh, did everything possible to change their identity, uh, their gender identity. They're suing to stop that. Because now in their 20s, 
they've mutilated their bodies and they see the folly of letting a child choose something like that. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. But that is, it's just, it just blows your mind to think that somebody would be so far gone away from common sense, science, and just the natural way that things are, that they would actually think, you know, I can change my gender identity. But that's where we are. And it's sad. Well, I've got to move along. I've got one more. Psalms 139, let's read. And by the way, see, you see how these overlap? This ties into the next one, which is the last one that I want to leave you with. The last major hot topic, bright line that the Word of God speaks clearly on is the issue of abortion. Psalms 139, verse 13. This is David talking to God, and he says, For thou, God, hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that means fearfully and wonderfully made, male and female. You see? That's a bright, clear line. Uh, Most of what you see today when it comes to the gender confusion has to do with people going with their feelings. You see? And we know from Jeremiah that the Lord says the heart is deceitful. The feelings are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them? I, the Lord, try the reins. You see? Let me tell you something. If I'm sinning and I'm doing something wrong, I am authorizing you. I'm imploring you to come and hurt my feelings. Please, please come hurt my feelings. If I'm fixing to drive my car off of the Grand Canyon and my feelings are telling me that I'm going to fly, I'm going to make it. Come and hurt my feelings, please. I want you to hurt my feelings. Do it in a loving way. But a brother's born for adversity. I need you to hurt my feelings when I'm about to drive off the cliff. And for an eight or nine-year-old child who's a girl or a boy comes and says, Mama, Daddy, I just don't feel like I'm a boy or I'm a girl. Oh, praise God for mamas and daddies that will tell the truth. It's your feelings, honey. You've been watching too much Netflix. You've been binge-watching The Babysitter's Club too much. Whatever that show is called that's been perverted from the original way that it was in the 80s, that book, that classic You see, praise God that someone would hurt somebody's feelings. Over and over, the Lord says he's made them male and female, male and female, male and female. There is no way he's made somebody female and they need to be male. It just doesn't work. Oh, my goodness, it's 12 o'clock. Will y'all give me time for just one more? Thank you. Thank you. I got to preach on up front. So that's all I want to hear. Don't say anything else. (laughs) The last one is abortion, the murder of an innocent child. You see, it's not pro-life and um, pro-choice. It is pro-life or pro-murder. For the child of God, it can only be pro-murder to support the murder of a child in the womb. God's, and by the way, I looked at a statistic. It says that 44% of Christians, 44% of Christians say that the Bible is not clear on this. I'm telling you, there is nothing more clear than this. That life, the sanctity of life begins at conception. The Word of God makes it clear. Psalms 139, David says, Thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You notice he says, I. He doesn't say, for the blob that's an embryo that turns into something else is fearfully and wonderfully made. No, he says that I, an individual, a person, I, David, am fearfully and wonderfully made when I was in my mother's womb, when I was conceived in the womb. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Thank you, David, for saying that you know this, because you're inspired from the Holy Spirit to tell us this. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made and seen 
secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. You could also apply that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, listen, hey, that is something right there that when you think about that, was God not the Lord Jesus Christ when He was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of Mary? Was He not the Son of God at that point when He was conceived? Or did He have to go through some embryonic stage to become the Son of God? I tell you, whenever the Holy Spirit went into the womb of the Virgin Mary and touched her womb and put His life in there, put the seed of God in there, that the Son of God was the Son of God when He was conceived. And not only that, the angel Gabriel comes and he tells uh, Zacharias and he tells Elizabeth, he says that your son, John the Baptist, he calls him by name. He doesn't say that little embryonic substance or that little whatever it's called by science and whatever they refer to it as, that thing is going to be John the Baptist. No, he says, John the Baptist, you will call his name John and he will be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. A conceived, amazing life form, a person, tiny little person in the womb. Okay, we're out of time, but I encourage you to go. You say, well, that just doesn't quite convince me, Brother Tim. Well, you go read Exodus 21. 21 and verse 22 through 25. I'll give you a little hint. It's where the Lord prescribed damages if a baby in the womb died because two men get in a fight. The Lord prescribed uh, even the penalty of death. If that little life form was killed. It says if there was no damage though, if, if the mother goes ahead and, and has that baby early because of the stress she's under or because she gets knocked down or something like that, go and read it. It's an absolute bright, clear line in the Word of God. It's murder. It's murder. Amen. Don't buy into the idea of uh, you know, women's rights and a woman's right to choose and all that. that I mean, I believe that, that women should be able to choose and do what's right and whatever. But when it comes to a life form that has, that has been conceived in the womb... That is a whole different set of rights that come into existence at that moment. That is a person. And the woman has no right whatsoever to murder that child. Now, praise God, if somebody has gone through that, I know people that have gone through that, and they have repented, and they have said, God, forgive me. And they've said, I can't wait to see my baby in heaven. Isn't that wonderful to know that the grace of God goes that far? Uh, Are these shockers for us? I don't think they are. Our nation continues to increase in fornication, promiscuity, adultery, unfaithfulness. Our nation continues to murder the innocents. You know, the Lord said in the book of Proverbs, He says, six things I hate, yea, seven are abomination to me. Hands that shed innocent blood, there can be no more innocent. And I'm not talking about not having the sin nature, okay? But I'm talking about somebody that's never even come into the world to do anything. There can be nothing more innocent than a babe in the womb. Homosexuality is accepted and you are condemned and canceled if you do not support it. I'll tell you, the country may be lost in one sense, but I want you to know the kingdom of God is not lost. The kingdom of God still goes on. The kingdom of God still moves forward, and it moves forward on these principles right here. These are some of the principles that it moves forward on. It moves forward on young people like we have seen here this morning. Praise God. And over the last month, three young people who have said, we want to cast our lot here. We want to follow the Lord in spite of the darkness, in spite of all the things that we face, in spite of all the terrible things that are going on, and all the vitriol and all the trouble that's around me. We want to go forward in serving the Lord and the kingdom of God because that's what matters the most. Praise God. I'm encouraged. I'm also encouraged to know that God has plenty to say about any issue that you want to take up. It's not my opinion. It's not my thoughts. It's not my spin. God's put all the spin on it that we need. He says brightly and clearly, these things are wrong. These things are right. 
Brothers and sisters, when it comes to our civic duty to vote and to be good citizens, we must factor those things in to who we choose to vote for. It's more than just, well, I like this candidate or I like that candidate. I'll just be honest with you. In many ways, I don't like any of the candidates. I can pick apart so many things that they do and that they don't do. I don't really like any of them. But I look at what they support. I look at how these things factor in to their lives. And that's how I make my choice. Please go out and vote. Do your civic duty. But base it on you being a citizen of the higher kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm very sorry that I went over six minutes this morning. I'm very sorry. But I didn't want to break this up into two. I wanted to just handle it in one sermon. And I hope it's been beneficial to you. Sir. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you, now, I've been preaching for 20, almost over 20 years. And this is the first time that I've had a keep going in the front and a keep going in the back. So we must be doing something right. So open your Bibles back up to, I'm just kidding. I love every one of you. If anything that I've said has come across as being mean-spirited or vitriolic, uh, forgive me. It's not the Spirit of God. I hope that I haven't. I hope that you can see from the Word of God that God's got the answers that we need. His kingdom holds those answers.